financial advisors, whether they work for their own RIA or work for a big firm, are actually very entrepreneurially oriented. So uh, I don't know that actually the, the broader American public knows that. Hello, we are with Henry Yoshida, co-founder and CEO of Rocket Dollar, a fintech entrepreneur who's been doing this for years. Henry, thank you for coming on the Raz Report today. Hey, thanks for having me. People introduce me as fintech entrepreneur. I think of myself probably much longer as a financial advisor, that's, more recently fintech. Yeah, that's true. Give us a little bit of a, your background. And I know it started as a financial advisor, then you got fintech because I know Goldman bought one of your companies. Um, but give us a little story of Henry Yoshida. I started at the in the Thundering Herd at Merrill Lynch in the year 2000 uh, because I was going to go to law school, but decided that I wanted to save up a little bit of money and get a job uh, for a little while. And so I started uh, in, in Merrill Lynch in the financial advisor training program in, the, in May of 2000. So it was great timing. I live in a tech-focused town, Austin, Texas, and the internet bubble decided to burst in March of that year. So great time to join the financial services industry. And I did that for 10 years and spun out in 2010. At that point, I think for two years, we were uh, technically in sort of this limbo period where we were owned by Bank of America. So I lovingly referred to it as Merrill of America mm -hmm. from 08 to 2010. And then we split out, did an RAA. Uh, my team and I, we founded an RAA 2010 to 2015. And then after I sold my stake in that, that's when I started doing fintech. And then now I'm on my second particular second one. You mentioned earlier that the first one, the Robo Advisor, was acquired by the Marcus division at Goldman Sachs. Yep, that was the start of it, right? What was that called? Uh, it was called Honest Dollar. So we had an opportunity to get this great domain name, honestdollar.com. You know, transparent pricing, just a Robo Advisor with a set monthly flat fee, regardless of how much you had. And that was the name of that one. And of course, you know, you guys can see it above that my current company is Rocket Dollar. Uh, dot com. I'd had a lot of these dollar denominated domain names. As a kid, were you inspired to get into the financial arena? So it was actually more high school time. My parents immigrated here in the 70s. So they came in the early 70s. Uh, I came about in the late 70s. And, you know, when I was in high school, I kind of realized and I learned throughout my life, just being the children of immigrants who never went to college working in the restaurant industry, that the people that tended to get ahead uh, or the people that ran things in the United States were actually people who were really good in knowing the rules. Uh, and by virtue of that, that's what led to me wanting to be a lawyer. So the rules meant laws. And I noticed that all politicians knew the rules. And so for me, um, my parents came into a little bit of money from a distant relative and for the first time in their life had hired someone, quote unquote, a financial advisor. But that person turned out to be kind of a salesperson for one of these very bad indexed variable annuity products. And I realized that they didn't know the rules. So that's kind of what hurt them. And that's what changed maybe the course of my life being really geeky about understanding how things work. So just rules and general laws for the United States, and in particular, how money moved and how business worked. So that's kind of what changed it. And that was when I was a sophomore in high school. Now, you didn't go right into the financial services. I mean, weren't you an intern for Bill Clinton at one point? I was, yeah. So between my um, junior and senior year of college, so I was, I went to college, you know, on this sort of wanting to know the rules. So everything I did was geared towards pre-law and going to law school. So I'd already taken the law school admissions test and so forth. So part of that was to go towards internships that were sort of known to be precursors to going into law school. And I was lucky enough as one of the two students that year from the University of Texas at Austin to where I did my undergraduate studies 
to qualify or get accepted into what was what is still a super competitive internship uh, at the White House in the West Wing of the White House. How'd you, how'd, and at the time, Bill Clinton was president. Were you just, a good, were you just a good student? Uh, I was I was a pretty I was a really good student, um, you know, my undergrad days. So, you know, I, I like going to school. I sort of, you know, I, I, I like the college experience. I'd never even lived, you know, outside of the town I grew up in. We didn't have enough money to go on vacations when I was a kid. So to me, college was like a vacation every day. So you, yeah. did, so you did well. How long were you an intern in the White House? So I signed up. Uh, they go in three terms and they may change that up now, but uh, they do. Uh, they do summer, spring, and winter. So to kind of make it worthwhile economically for me, you kind of have to leave school and be there full time. So I applied separately for two consecutive uh, sessions, and I did, I did basically the uh, spring and then the summer. So I was there from January through the end of summer. Got it. Do you like it? I liked it a lot. So we had a lot of access, and then you know I always get asked the question of the timing since it was the second term for Bill Clinton that I was in the class immediately following uh, probably the most famous intern in world history, I would say at this point. So we were the class that got a lot of attention, a lot of questions about, you know, how much access, you know, what do we do on a daily basis and so forth. So it, it was, it was, it was a pretty fun time in life. You as a financial advisor with tons of experience, we, we were talking when we were at the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year event in Palm Springs, and we were talking about, you know, some of the secrets behind financial advisors and a few of the things are you know why financial advisors quit um or when they quit and then how does like the bonus and pay work um let's start off with when is the best time for financial advisors to quit their position and move on to another role yeah well and, and we should back up just real quick too you know a lot of people sort of recognize that hey you work at a firm like a merrill lynch um, UBS, Morgan Stanley. So these are the wirehouse advisors, but it actually is a good foundational framework for becoming an entrepreneur because you learn how to basically build your own business. So I think outwardly it's portrayed as being a part of a big team, but inwardly you actually kind of run your own particular practice and business inside and you have to go raise money or, or bring in money from clients and you have to decide what your niche is going to be. So it's a great framework. And, and that will give you an understanding of what uh, what I learned being a warehouse advisor for 10 years, which is that because you have your business and your clients are for the most part yours, although technically they are owned by the firm you work for, you have the ability to have influence to bring them with you. So because of that, if you're a warehouse advisor at one firm, you actually get offered bonuses to to leave that firm and go join another firm. So let's say going from a UBS or Morgan Stanley uh, or vice versa and so forth. And, and if you kind of understand your audience does, the general geographic makeup for a lot of these firms and where they're located, they're typically concentrated in a downtown area within the same five, six blocks uh, in most major cities in the U.S. So this is actually just a geographic move of likely only two to three blocks, but an opportunity for you to monetize a one-time payout uh, to go from one firm to another. I get it. I mean, when you're a financial advisor, you're tr t totally an entrepreneur. I mean, I've never seen, you know, you know that we sold a majority interest in Benzinga. I have a whole folder now for all the financial advisors have reached out to me and some gifts in the mail that I brought to Benzinga and just hand out. I got a, I got like a box from one that was like 11, like eight different things. And I brought it to Benzinga on Friday and just gave out. Right. But it, but by the way, that does that stuff does have an impact, I got to say, because then I feel guilty. They're sending me stuff and it makes me want to do business with them. I don't know. I, I, or I at least I hear, their, be, hear, hear out their pitch, right? And what what's their niche and what do they bring to the table? Yes. Value yes. I shouldn't be such a sponge, but, but I feel like if someone's going to hustle, 
I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. That's that's what I feel. And just because I know how hard it was to build up Benzinga. Yeah, I'll hear out their pitch. It'll open the door. It'll open sure. the door. Now, auditing emails will not open the door. But if it's something that they did something special. Um, and there's this one company that sent me a package, of envelope, calls. I don't even know what he's offering yet. But he's getting close where I'm going to hear his pitch out, even though I have no clue what they do. I'm so confused by it. When is the opportunity? If you're going to switch jobs and move on, like, how does it work? When's the best time to do that? Give us give us the lowdown. The thing sure. behind the thing, the behind the scenes, Henry Yoshida, CEO yeah. and founder of Honest Dollar was the first one. Now it's Rocket Dollar. So the, the lowdown behind it is that you essentially... Depending on what your gross top line revenue is that you generate for the firm, your offer for a particular new firm is actually typically based on that number. So they kind of give you a, a pretty high percentage of that, anywhere from, let's say, 40% to maybe even 125% of that top line revenue at the place you're currently at. Wait, wait. And then they wait, offer it, that to you in the form of a bonus to go to the new firm. Will you explain that like with real numbers? Yeah. So, you know, let's say uh, we'll make it easy. Let's just say that you generate a million dollars top line uh, for the firm you work for. And then you're on a payout percentage because you, you obviously get a lot of services and a lot of infrastructure and a lot of brand recognition uh, provided by the house. So if you generate a million dollars top line for the firm and the people that are getting these offers typically are generating much more than this now. But this is just for the sake of math. Um, that you generate a million top line. A million dollars in fees, not in assets under management. A million dollars in fees. Not, not either one. So remember, there's a formula that's based on what the firm you work for actually knows what you generate in revenue for them. So that could be uh, just overall. That could be the fees that you garner off of your entire client base. That could be you know, some transactions that you do might generate a one-time. Maybe you did a lending product uh, because your your parent company has banking products and so forth. So it's just a million bucks. And then the payout to the end advisor might be 35 or 40 or 45 percent of that depending on uh you know what your negotiated structure is so the bonus to go to the new firm is based on that one million it might be hey we'll give you a million bucks if you come join our firm and then over if you stay with us for five to seven years it, it just kind of becomes forgivable in little chunks it's it sort of reverse vests in a way so if you stay at the new firm through the entire let's say eight year period then you don't need to pay that that upfront cash bonus back. So that's why you typically see, you know, advisors, warehouse advisors go from one firm to another over time. So it's very advantageous in that regard. It's very advantageous because if you're there, you can get paid nice to get, you can get paid nice to go to another firm. So then what locks on, what keeps someone at an existing firm? What do existing firms do to give you that carrot to keep you to stay at your existing firm? Yeah, well, so one of them is that, remember, technically, the client base that you develop is owned by that firm. So that's one carrot that that unlike an RIA where it's your business and, and you know, you have the right to uh, take it with you. And some of these warehouse advisors, a lot of them are transitioning, right? They go different routes. So they work out the math to say, hey, is it better for me to go to a new big name uh, Wall Street brokerage firm and, jo and join their wealth management division? Or is the math better because I can develop and now I pay for all the infrastructure and my million dollars in top line revenue, I'll end up netting better than that 35 or 40% if I just get my own office, uh, hire my own staff and pay my own expenses, for example. So you got two forks there. But the way that the current firms sort of um, keep you is that that's where adjustments might be made in that payout ratio. So instead of 30 
percent, it might be 35 instead of 35, it might be 40. And that number could be adjusted depending on how many years you've been at your current firm. They give you a higher payout ratio, but as you know, people do move around. They do move around. People do, but some people don't, right? Because remember, there's the risk that the clients don't come with you, even though, you know, hey, I might think that that Raz will come with me if I go from one firm to another. He might say, hey, look, I really like, you know, to have my 19 accounts set up here, trust accounts for my family, my lending, uh, mortgage for my primary residence, uh, mortgage for my vacation home and so forth. Just too much trouble to switch. Um, or I like being a part of XYZ firm. Yeah, I, I wish you the best, but I'm going to try to maybe get interviewed and stick with someone else that's that's at the firm that you're uh, leaving Do you, and so forth. So that's the risk. The way that financial advisors have been getting paid has changed over the years too, right? I mean, it first was broker commissions, and then it was other fees. And now a lot of it's asset center management. Asset asset center management. Do you sure. think that continues to change or evolve, or what do you what do you think happens, and what or what do you think is the appropriate way to do it, anyways? Yeah, well, you know, I would tell you right now that remember, you're running your business. So if you had a choice, think about this. If you asked any business owner in any industry, would they rather have unpredictable transactional ebbs and flows where they don't know, they can't model what's going to happen year over year, or they'd rather have an ongoing income stream uh, that's based on some formula that you can model going forward? They'd probably pick the latter. And so I think the trend in financial services with advisors is going to continue to be that, hey, I want to have this sort of asset-based, uh, you know, AKA assets under management. And I want to be able to attach my fee structure for that. So for clients with, I don't know, zero to $500,000 in assets under management with me, that fee may be 1%. And then for people that hit a break point, 500,000 to 1.5 million, I want to charge uh, 45 basis points and so forth. It's predictable. So I think the trend will continue to be that it's an AUM play uh, and so forth. Cause mo more of the products are structured that way too. And at the end of it, you know, Benzinga has an audience of a lot of people in the financial services industry. I think there is a semblance of it. It's aligning people on the same side of the table a little bit better, right? I get paid more if you give me more money to manage or if I grow your account over time versus I get paid one time in a transaction for things I do with some portions of your money. It's, it's the same way businesses are valued too, right? So businesses accrue to a higher valuation if it's an ongoing recurring revenue stream versus a transactional unpredictable. And so I know. Forth. So that's why, you know, value companies like Netflix with their monthly subscriptions are maybe valued higher than someone who just kind of sells products with a transaction. It just seems revenue it, it just seems like there's a lot of margin made in this financial services industry from you, you watch golf tournaments, you see the advertisers from Mass Mutual to City. There's, it seems like there's a lot of margin to be made, not to fault margin that it's great, but with fintech and technology is do some things get done easier, more efficiently, you know, not as opaquely, I guess. Yeah. It, I mean, look, if you can, if you can justify the value proposition uh, to support the margins that you, you garner, uh, then that's fine. And then what you're seeing is margins now switching to newer products and newer asset classes, right? So margins and fees uh, on the exchanges for crypto are much higher than they are on, on stocks right now. That's true. Probably akin to what stocks were 30 years ago. And maybe, you know, that'll get drilled down. There'll be a race, uh, a race to finding some sort of happy medium in there. But on the advisor side, you know, what we talked about earlier is that, that I think the bottom line is that, Hey, FAs at wirehouse firms are effectively, as I just told everyone, they're building their business. So this is their opportunity, maybe once or twice 
in a career to potentially monetize against that business, which is technically a part of the firm they're leaving. And it's just something that's happened. Some people choose to stay. That's why you see their 20, 30 year uh, tenures. But you typically see you know, these people making a move once or twice in their career. When, if you're going to leave your financial advisor, Joe Schmo, and you're going to leave your firm, when do people leave? What's the best day? Is there a date or how should they leave their firm? Yeah. So look, at the end of this, the underlying people uh, are the clients, right? And it's the client's money. They choose to hold it or have it managed by a financial advisor and it belongs to them. So there's actually a set sort of uh, protocol. And when I use the word protocol, there is an actual protocol, which is a methodology that you do not take client information with you. You just basically take very basic publicly available information. So like, you know, name and even like address uh, to a certain extent, you could take two because that is available publicly on property tax records uh, for someone that doesn't obfuscate that they're the owner of their own home. And you present that information typically for the firm that you're leaving on a Friday afternoon, because at this point, you've probably already set up infrastructure at the new firm to go to. You walk and you show this to your manager. You give them a list and say, hey, I'm going to be leaving effective now. But there is no two week uh, sort of notice period in financial services. It, it's it's uh, customer accounts. It's personal information. So you leave. You're going to be leaving that day. You're going to get escorted out that day. And you typically try to do it maybe on a Friday afternoon and for you to have enough time to contact the clients, which you're you're able to do and ask them if they'd be interested in coming with you, but not talking to them about it before uh, you might give yourself a long weekend to do so. So one of those ones with a Monday holiday and so forth. So you have a chance to potentially talk to what the advisor would say is my client base, uh, although the firm you're leaving would say that it's their client base. So you so you can call on Monday, you can call that weekend, like if you if, if you're leaving the firm, you can still call on them you can call that person over the weekend i mean they are they are so it depends on how you look at it right i'm the advisor i cultivated these relationships i mean i view them as my clients now from a technicality perspective they may they may be clients of the firm that you're leaving but you have a right to contact them after you've notified that you're going to leave not before and talk to them over that weekend you're just i guess in a way maybe uh, to be real transparent about it you're just giving yourself a leg up to communicate with your now former clients to come with you to the new firm it's a, it's an edge to give you that time before other advisors call on those clients right because they'll redistribute the client names and the client contact information to the advisors in the firm that you just left to communicate about retaining them so people do it all the time but they make sure to do it on that 3 week vacation i think people do it at, at all different times. But if you're if you're kind of in the know, then you would probably talk to someone like me, like I talked to a senior person who'd done it before, and maybe get some strategies that stay within the rules, you know, give you the best opportunity to communicate with your clients to see if they want to come with you for that transition. So if you're a financial advisor, smart to do if you're leaving your firm smart to do it on like before MLK or Labor Day or Memorial Day. Yeah, one of the one of the ones you give yourself that you know, extra day to talk to the folks. And, but you got to be very sensitive. You can't tell people beforehand because then you've violated the rules already. You know, you can't, you can't canvas your clients for, you know, several months or weeks before that, then you're the one violating the rules. So if um, you do, do that, then the, the firm you're leaving could come after you. They'll come after you. Yeah. Okay. They'll, they'll try to seek, you know, some sort of, Hey, you, you know, you can't contact these people. They're our clients. You're using information that belongs to us on behalf of the client. All right. 
Now, just going back to compensate, a little bit of compensation. If I am a financial advisor, I don't know, you know you said RA, but if I'm a financial advisor, I work at Morgan Stanley and I have AUM 100 million. Do you know approximately what I get paid? Uh, it depends on the makeup of your business. So if, if your business was developed in sort of positioning, I don't know, structured products or maybe carve outs into private equity and alternatives deals, you're probably making, you know, a lot more um, than you would if you're sort of, uh, I guess, niche with your client base at Morgan Stanley. The hypothetical scenario was that you just put people into managed fund to fund portfolios that have underlying ETFs, for example, and you're garnering a 100 basis point fee. So if you say that, they'd be a million dollar producer. But if someone did more transactional things into uh, proprietary products and carve outs, they could they could easily maybe potentially double that. So if you're saying like, the same 100 million, like for private equity fund, you get them into private equity funds, unique assets. That's where you have an opportunity to triple than just putting in to, you know, mutual funds. Right. And and so the the, the particular example you used, I know about uh, because I maintain accounts, even though I'm qualified, just like you, Jason, to probably manage your own money. So the reason why we maintain these accounts is actually so we have maybe access to certain things that uh, we can't get on our own in our own do-it-yourself brokerage discount accounts. Yeah, if you if you make your business doing one of these sort of carve-outs and presenting them to your clients, then that's typically done on a transaction at a higher margin or sort of percentage than okay. if you were just ongoing managing index fund ETFs. But if I'm doing index ETFs and I have $100 million in management, my approximate fees for the firm are $1 million dollars. And out of that million dollars, I should expect, would I expect to make about 500000 then? Uh, probably less. So if you're a million dollar producer, your take, your sort of, you know, payout rate could probably be between 30 to 45%. So think 300000 to 450000 Is $100 million hard to get to? I think that's a pretty good milestone inside of a wirehouse channel. Yeah, that's probably a pretty good foundational base for you to have a very attractive opportunity to think about running the numbers and seeing if it makes sense if you choose to leave to go become your own RIA or, you know, sort of, again, we just talked about that formula, maybe taking a million dollar just to make it easy. If you did a million top line, taking a million dollar bonus to go to a new firm. And to get that bonus, do I have to be at that new firm for a certain period of time? Yeah. So it's a, it's a reverse vesting. So, you know, back in the day when it was being offered to it in my vintages, uh, it was sort of, Hey, you need to stay at the new place for five to 10 years. And it's a cliff, you know, every, maybe some portion of it every year gets forgiven in a way. And then it's completely forgiven after eight years, for example. Did you ever want to create like your own Morgan Stanley? I know you kind of did with your, like you started, I think it was like your money or, um, uh, M Y, um, Mara Shishida group. Um, yeah. So that was my RIA. Yeah. But so with our RAA, I would tell you right now that we had no intentions of trying to be this broader platform. It's that we were doing consulting. My particular niche, uh, we didn't talk about this earlier, but since I started in the middle of the internet bubble bursting at Merrill Lynch in the year 2000, it was very hard to develop that traditional mass affluent and high net worth individual customer base to work with a kid that just talked really fast and had no experience and no family connections uh, here in Austin, Texas. So my niche very early in my career became 401ks and sort of the management and setting up of these retirement plans. And that's what I've stuck with ever since. So I did that for the 10 years at Merrill. My RIA was a 401k consulting focused RIA that we grew to two and a half billion dollars in assets before I left to do fintech opportunities. So we really wow. just created that RIA as a way to be flexible to do the business that we were already doing. I didn't have plans to try to make it a platform. Um, and I would say in my last startup, I didn't either. The current one, I, I would 
probably say that yes, we're working on developing a very sort of good beachhead focus to attract a massive fluent customer base. And then over time, it would be to expand the product offerings on our platform uh, to essentially make us more and more over time a go-to destination to bring more and more of that investable wallet. Is that part of what you're doing now with your company now or with something else? Is it Rocket Dollar that you're talking about or something else? I'm talking about with Rocket Dollar. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of, you know, after building, you know, my own business within the wirehouse for 10 years, uh, 2000 to 2010, and then taking the leap. So people always think that I've been tagged with this term and maybe you have too, Jason, like serial entrepreneur. But I like to think that each time I just dipped a different toe or a different limb into the water to kind of learn and experiment. Uh, So I did build my own business at Merrill Lynch. But at the end of the day, I never had to, you know, worry about servers, IT, rent. Uh, insurance or any of those things. So it was a very sort of Merrill Lynch provided a lot of that infrastructure. Then in an RIA, I did have to learn how to create the firm, go sign a lease and, and you know, set up our own 401k plan and so forth. And then of course, uh, but we were using off the shelf systems to run that RA. Then the next one, Honest Dollar, now you're having to do it all from scratch, including raising the capital to go build this business and develop the software that you were delivering your product and services through. And then I think now finally, maybe in my fourth uh, go round at it here with Honest Dollar, that I'm really thinking about how do I get the business started in the early days and how do I you know, become the Fidelity or Morgan Stanley for the mass affluent over time? Yeah. So how are you going to do it? only that? took 20 years. So how are you going to do it? Well, we're in the early stages of that, but I would say the first thing, you know, what we're working on today at Rocket Dollar is that we have a product that's that's very focused and and very unique, but it tends to have uh, characteristics that we like for our customer base, which is that it attracts a mass affluent, uh, what I call Henry's, the high earners, not rich yet uh, customer base. And when we get a relationship with that customer, it tends to be very sticky because our product, by virtue of what Rocket Dollar does, allows people to buy illiquid private investments inside of a tax-restricted account. So what what we in sort of uh, tech and fintech call it is that it's a very sticky customer. So there's a there's a high LTV there and lifetime value because it's not very easy to quit the account and so forth. And that gives me the opportunity over time to develop other services and products that would be attractive to that same consumer demographic that's a current customer. And how are you getting these customers to find out about you? Yeah. So, you know, we, we have a lot of, other than through Benzinga. Yeah. Other than through Benzinga, but you know, that, that alone covers a lot of it, of course. Uh, so nice plug for, for you sure. guys. Um, but you, you know, we've decided that in a way this is a new capability, although it's always existed for many decades, which is to do these private investments using an IRA account. So we recognize that, Hey, what we can afford to do is be very uh, conscientious about trying to position ourselves as a credible uh, source for people to get information about this capability and then simultaneously establishing that based on my background as a 20-year financial advisor, former wirehouse, former RAA, former robo-advisor, founder with an exit and a a CFP all throughout with FINRA licenses that we have built a software platform that you could do this capability through and driving people to the site and then making sure that there's a lot of content there for people to learn and then having affiliate channels to sort of create that top of funnel. So we've been very direct to consumer focused. I think in 2022, we'll work on more 
uh, I guess you could say, quote unquote, distribution partnerships with the regular financial services industry. But to date, you know, we're we're at about half a billion dollars in assets right now. And so at the end of the day, why is the customer putting assets in it right now? Right now, I think people have a lot of interest. You and I were talking offline here before doing the recording about, a, you know, a commercial real estate deal that you were looking at in my neck of the woods down in Texas and right. so forth. So, you know, what, what I allow people to do is to say, hey, I work for 10, 15 years at XYZ corporate company with a 401k. If I can tap into those dollars to be able to make these types of investments on the private side, um, you know, this is the best of both worlds. I didn't know that I could do this and I have a really long time horizon and great tax treatment for that money. So you can do that through a 401k? Well, you can do it through rocket dollars. So we we help people unlock these old 401ks or IRAs with us. We're we're an IRA provider, no different than, let's say, a Fidelity Schwab, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley. But in our IRAs, our customers are able to to do private and alt investments instead of just stock bond mutual funds. So is the growth through rocket dollar going to come through working with firms like employers to use you guys as an option? Uh, I don't think it'll be employers because I spent a lot of time and I managed billions of dollars in that space. So employer offered 401ks are actually a different, it's a company benefit. So they're not really designed, if you've ever noticed, to try to give you access to any and all investments. They're really there. So while you're working at a particular company, people are able to put away a small portion of their paycheck, you know, get inside of a really good tax treatment account and grow that towards their retirement savings. So really where I come in is I help people access any old 401k. So right now, if you talk to an average 40 year old, they've probably had five, six jobs in the past, maybe three or four of them had corporate 401ks. All of those accounts are now eligible to be rolled to an IRA. You could do that with the regular providers that let you do regular things, or you could roll it to me. And you can do the cool private things that you might have been eyeing and, and learning about from your friends. So is, is, is a lot of it making people understand that they can do this? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's an awareness thing. I'm saying, hey, you can actually, you've always been allowed to do something different. You know, we saw some articles earlier this year that Peter Thiel and Mitt Romney uh, were investing in private things using an IRA, and they've grown these accounts to nine figure values. This has always been allowed by the average American person. It's just been difficult to find a provider. Why aren't more companies doing this? Why isn't someone doing rocket dollar already? Yeah. So you, you've had a lot of a lot of these shows in the past that have talked about this. But remember, think about it. The current financial services industry, uh, they call it financial services, but they're also in the financial products industry, too. So many of the products they create, uh, their monetization strategy is by building a vertical stack on creating products that are built on top of public registered securities. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to cannibalize these revenue streams. So this this could be a billion dollar idea. Well, so the thing is, my goal is I want to see if I can make a billion dollars. So the company would need to be worth far more than that. You know, when you look at it, the marketplace here, there is about $14 trillion in IRAs, $33 trillion overall in retirement accounts in the US. And if you round it up, you know, 100% of that money is sitting in something that's not private and alt investments, which could be anything from private equity, venture funds, early stage technology, startup angel investments, real estate, crypto, crowdfunding, you name it. Huge potential. I mean, huge. Uh, I'm ready to send my check over right now. Yeah. Well, you know, it takes about three to five minutes to open up the account, Jason. We'd love to have you. You've been in the industry for many years. You've been very successful. Is there anything else we missed in regards to that, Henry? You know, I think it's that maybe it's good for the audience to recognize that financial advisors, whether they work for their own RIA or work for a big firm, are actually very entrepreneurially oriented. So uh, I don't know that actually the, the broader American public knows that that you're, everyone's building their own book uh, and everyone has their own sort of strategies and niche. Mine became 
you know, consulting on retirement plans and tax advantaged accounts that trickle down to IRAs. That's that's what I made my career on. But someone else may do something completely different. You just got to find your space within these large platforms and organizations and uh, just recognize that these advisors, some of them may take opportunities to actually monetize uh, their business. What was your worst or first job? Yeah. So my first job, um, I worked at a McDonald's uh, Mm. that was in Garland, Texas. So that's a kind of a Northeast uh, suburb of Texas. And it was a really, really tough job. So, you know, I decided to take my talents to another more locally owned burger joint, uh, fast food right down the street. So I think I lasted for maybe about six months at McDonald's, okay. uh, learned what I could in, in the uh, in, in the big thing, kind of analogous maybe to my career, right? Learned first at the really big established organization and then took that information and knowledge and went to smaller places. How old were you when you did this? Uh, I was 16 years old. So the day I turned 16, I started that job. I didn't even start on the burgers either. I mean, just so you know, when you start at McDonald's and you're 16, you don't actually start even in, you just start by cleaning the kitchen. You don't actually cook any food. That's that's a promotion. And did you hate yeah. it? Did you hate it? What was like, what was your take on that one? Yeah, you know, I, I hated the job, but I guess I respected that that there was a process literally for everything at that place. I mean, there was a way to do every little thing at that place. So I can I, now many years later, I did recognize why this company was one of you know the most vaunted brand names in Fortune 100 companies for decades. Wow. You understood why. You understood the systematic nature of building a business. Of processes and focus, actually, right? I mean, you know, as far, at least in my entire lifetime, McDonald's has never tried to become a fine dining restaurant and so forth. So we take that to heart here in the business, right? Honest Dollar was very focused in doing what they did. Rockadell was very focused. My RAA was very, very focused. Like we weren't, you know, we didn't even have like, here's the three things that we do. We had the one that were that we were really awesome at. Henry Yoshida, co-founder, CEO of Rocket Dollar. It's his new startup. Uh, given the secrets behind financial advisors. Uh, there'll be a lot more from him. Read about him on Benzinga. And uh, thank you for coming on the Raz Report today. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for having me, Jason. Appreciate it. Did you know nearly all stock price changes of 10% or more result from a single news headline? That's right. News headlines have a unique ability to drive stock prices up or down. These news catalysts create trading opportunities every day. All you need is a little help to reach out and take them. And if you're looking to grow your portfolio, it doesn't matter if your investment budget is small or big. An easy-to-read stream of news headlines will increase your opportunities to profit from price changes in the stock market, consolidate a knowledge-based investment strategy, and grow your portfolio. All you need is Benzinga Pro and its powerful news alerts, price tracking, and portfolio monitoring to make a positive change in your trading performance. We've already helped thousands of retail traders across the world, and they could not be happier. Increase your market knowledge, boost your exposure to big movers, and make informed trades before major price changes. The opportunities are all around you. Subscribe now and we'll skyrocket your portfolio today.